The middle way in Buddhism is a spiritual course which falls in the middle between extreme asceticism and overindulgence. I feel as though I am trying to chart a similar course in my career as a theoretical neuroscientist. On the one hand, empirical science can be excessively rigid, disallowing contemplation of anything which is difficult to define or to draw hard borders around. In science, this leads to slow, incremental progress within well-defined lanes. Psychology went through a long period of behaviorism for essentially these reasons. It became focused to a fault upon questions and experimental methods which could be directly observed. Never mind what the subject is thinking or feeling, what is the subject doing that we can clearly observe? Behavioral research is valuable and we learn a lot from it, don't get me wrong. In fact, much of my recent experimental work would fall solidly under that description. But the purpose of these experiments is to understand what is happening in the brain following traumatic stress, and we want to know this so we can understand post-traumatic stress disorder. These subjects, stress, trauma, and so on, indeed all mental illnesses have to do with the way we feel and our modes of thinking. Behaviorism is not a good approach to such considerations. Some behaviorists would even deny them altogether as phenomena, and some deny the problem of consciousness along the same lines. On the opposite side of the spectrum is the overly speculative and creative, modes of overindulgent thinking. Wild speculation will lead to a few good ideas and a lot of bad ones. And it's not always easy to tell which is which. The former mode, the excessively ascetic, leads to false negatives. Many things which exist are neglected or denied. The latter mode, the overindulgent, leads to false positives. Many things are proposed to exist which are nonsense. As long as the scientific enterprise is composed of both approaches, we'll be all right. I would rather not fall into either error myself, so I seek a middle way, an open but skeptical approach. It's a difficult line to walk, but I think it is the most practical. In Eastern philosophy, this is the line between yin and yang, between feminine and masculine, between chaos and order. We need both, and both live in each of us. A brief word on politics while I'm here. I find as I get older that I seek a middle way in the domain of politics. Conservatism is concerned with what has been working and should be preserved. Progressivism is concerned with what isn't good enough and needs improvement. As we approach problems in our society, we need to give heed to each of these values, those of the left and those of the right. Where there is disagreement, the left tends to exaggerate the problems, while the right tends to minimize them. Interestingly, these propensities map onto different personality types. Personality characteristics predict a political affiliation. There is also a statistical difference of about one standard deviation between men and women in these personality characteristics. Of course, the bell curves overlap. I'm just speaking about averages. But is it any surprise that in U.S. elections, men are more likely to vote for Republicans and women are more likely to vote for Democrats? Just as we need both men and women to make the world go round, so we need people who lean left and people who lean right to make our society function. The middle way is not to sit in the center and have no opinion. It's just to not fall so far one way or the other on a given concern to be unable to understand the opposing viewpoint. Today, I will analyze some claims which I find a bit far out for my taste. Proceeding according to the Socratic method, one begins with an interlocutor who's making a claim. Socrates, or someone employing his method, responds by asking a series of questions aimed at refuting the claim using information that is known and accepted by the interlocutor. For example, suppose someone were to make the inane suggestion that all philosophers have an S in their name. A dialogue ensues in which it is established that Plato does not have an S in his name. 
Since the interlocutor agrees that Plato is a philosopher, and that the spelling of his name is achieved without the letter S, the claim has been refuted. An alternative just as stupid as the original suggestion would be to argue that we have all been spelling Plato wrong for 2,000 years. Supposing that we accepted this historical modification, we would still not be convinced of the claim, as our dialogue would soon summon up John Locke, David Hume, and Immanuel Kant. Thus, counterexamples are useful means of separating the wheat from the chaff when it comes to claims. This holds perfectly true for scientific hypotheses. According to integrated information theory, consciousness is integrated information. The theorists studied the human brain in order to contrast states where consciousness is present from states where consciousness is absent. They noted that the integration of information is occurring in the thalamocortical system during conscious, but not during non-conscious states. Here we have at least a functional correlation between states of consciousness and structures which integrate information. Areas of the brain which have been shown to be dispensable with regard to consciousness are areas which communicate in a parallel, feed-forward manner. Thus, the primary visual cortex, the brainstem, and the cerebellum are all good examples of non-conscious structures which fail to integrate information. Moreover, during states of non-consciousness, either during dreamless sleep or under general anesthesia, even the thalamocortical networks which are capable of integrated information processing appear to fail in that endeavor. Good. This is a very nice neural correlate of consciousness. The question must be, is integrated information sufficient for consciousness? Given the hypothesis that consciousness is integrated information, what would Socrates do? He would query whether there are non-conscious things which exhibit integrated information. This is from a paper on IIT by Giulio Tononi and Christoph Koch called Consciousness Here, There, and Everywhere. The authors write, quote, a corollary of IIT that violates common intuitions is that even circuits as simple as a photodiode made up of a sensor and a memory element can have a modicum of experience. It is nearly impossible to imagine what it would feel like to be such a circuit, for which the only phenomenal distinction would be between this rather than not this. But consider that normal matter at minus 272.15 degrees centigrade, one degree above absolute zero, still contains some heat. However, in practice, its temperature is as cold as it gets. Similarly, there may well be a practical threshold for Phimax, below which people do not report feeling much of anything. But this does not mean that consciousness has reached its absolute minimum, zero. Indeed, when we fall into a deep, dreamless sleep and don't report any experience upon being awoken, some small complex of neurons within our sleeping brain will likely have a Phimax value greater than zero. Yet that may not amount to much compared to that of our rich, everyday experience." Unquote. Do you see what happened there? Phimax is a measure of integrated information. Given that a simple piece of hardware like a photodiode or a thermostat can have a Phimax of greater than zero, the theorists conclude that such devices are capable of consciousness. Considering that we only know for sure that human brains are sometimes able to produce conscious minds, a thermostat or a photodiode belongs to the list along with hats, and buttons, and mountains and shrubs that are not conscious. We don't know that for sure, of course, but it seems parsimonious to me to assume that the hypothesis is flawed when it draws such conclusions about photodiodes. What is the conscious mind? asked Socrates. His compatriot, who lives in the 21st century and is educated in neuroscience, says, it is something which occurs in accordance with brain function. Socrates says, go and study the brain in order to determine what brain function is necessary and sufficient for the conscious mind, and then return to me with a hypothesis. The compatriot goes and studies the brain during conscious and non-conscious states, 
and discovers that whenever there is a conscious experience, there is integrated information. Any intervention employed against such integration, which he tries on his subjects, results in a loss of consciousness. He concludes that integrated information is necessary for consciousness. He comes back to Socrates with the hypothesis that consciousness is integrated information. Ah, says Socrates, where else can we find integrated information? His compatriot considers the case and answers, well, lots of places. He names a whole bunch of things which have nothing to do with the brain or anything brain-like at all. Shouldn't he conclude, then, that his hypothesis has failed? Moreover, the paragraph I shared with you also states that there are networks in the brain which exhibit integrated information even we are, when we are not having conscious experiences. But they stick with the theory. Hey, Professor, you know how we see integrated information in the thalamocortical system only during conscious experiences? Well, I've just found that there is integrated information present even when we are not conscious. Is that right? Well, never mind. I guess we must still be conscious even when we're not. I'm not saying that such things as photodiodes are definitely not having subjective experiences. I'm just saying that I'm highly skeptical. This is why, according to my own theory of consciousness, integrated information is necessary but not sufficient for consciousness. A paper has recently come out claiming con consciousness for plants in accordance with integrated information theory. It's called Integrated Information as a Possible Basis for Plant Consciousness by Paco Calvo, Frantisek Beluska, and Anthony Tuevis. The abstract reads, quote, It is commonly assumed that plants do not possess consciousness. Since the criterion for this assumption is usually human consciousness, this assumption represents a top-down attitude. It is obvious that plants are not animals, and using animal criteria of consciousness will lead to its rejection in plants. However, using a bottom-up evolutionary approach and a leading theory of consciousness, integrated information theory, we report that we find evidence that indicates that plant meristems act in a conscious fashion, although probably at a level of minimal consciousness. Since many plants contain multiple meristems, these observations highlight a very different evolutionary approach to consciousness in biological organisms." Unquote. In plants, meristematic tissues are composed of undifferentiated developing cells. The authors say that we approach consciousness in a top-down manner, with human consciousness as our standard. This is necessarily true, but I see another top-down imposition going on here, which is to extend human-like characteristics to non-human things. Another recent paper is called Biomolecular Basis of Cellular Consciousness via Subcellular Nanobrains by Beluska, William Miller, and Arthur Reber. Beluska et al. write, quote, Lynn Margulis was one of the first scientists to seriously discuss the evolutionary origin of cellular consciousness and argued that prokaryotic cells that merged to form chimeric eukaryotic cells had their own prokaryotic-specific sentience. In her view, the original prokaryotic cells had a proto-consciousness, and the two merged cells generated a supracellular consciousness. We develop this below from the perspective of the actin and tubulin-based cytoskeletal elements where the host cell is proposed as a large archaea cell based on the actin cytoskeleton, while the small motile guest cell is based on the tubulin cytoskeleton supported by the centrosome and basal bodies that animate eukaryotic flagella. We recently discussed the biological foundations of cellular consciousness based on how an excitable plasma membrane, densely populated with so-called biological Maxwell demons, such as sensors, receptors, ion channels, transporters, and ATPases, can generate a senomic cellular field. 
In the evolutionary origins of the eukaryotic cell, both the large actin-based host cell and the smaller guest cell, which relied on the tubulin-based cytoskeleton, were proposed to be ancient archaea. This may allow the merging of their fields to generate the new, stronger, and cenomic field of an emergent eukaryotic cell. In addition to the excitable plasma membrane and membranes of recycling vesicles, other cellular structures that are capable of contributing to the cellular fields are the large bundled vibrating elements of the cytoskeleton, such as F-actin and microtubules. Both excitable plasma membrane and cytoskeletal elements have been proposed to generate proto-consciousness of individual eukaryotic cells. Vibrations of excitable polymers contribute to the intracellular electromagnetic fields and can be expected to interact with the field emanating from the excitable plasma membrane. As microtubules act as memristors through combinations of memory and electromagnetic resistance, they are well suited to faithfully decode the cellular cenomic fields and to act accordingly. Furthermore, microtubules are structurally linked to both the actin filaments as well as the plasma membrane. They're perfectly suited to generate subcellular bioelectric circuits." Unquote. I looked up the reference and found out what they mean by the cenomic field. This is the field representing the sum of all the sensory experiences of the cell. It refers, I think unfairly, to sensory experiences which directly implicates consciousness. They suggest a role for elements of the cytoskeleton in influencing the cell's electromagnetic field and therefore consciousness. This is the exact thinking process that I brought into question before. When I encountered the idea that microtubules and other cytoskeletal proteins are involved in consciousness, my first question was of a Socratic sort. The interlocutor claims microtubules are involved in consciousness. Socrates inquires whether there are non-conscious things or conditions in which microtubules are present. The answer is a definite yes. Microtubules are present and active in areas of the nervous system which are not involved in consciousness. The spinal cord, the brainstem, the cerebellum, the primary visual cortex. This should be taken as evidence that microtubules are not the thing we are looking for. The authors in this paper claim consciousness for single cells and single-celled organisms, which is dependent upon the electromagnetic field under the influence of the cytoskeleton. Why should this be? Because of the cell's electromagnetic field? Everything which occurs in chemistry is under the control of the electromagnetic force. This is how every machine works. Are machines conscious? Does the thermostat feel a bit cold and thus turn on the furnace? Does my car's odometer feel thirsty and represent that to me with the pointer in my dashboard? Being directed to action by a physical force does not imply consciousness. The seven ball does not experience the collision of the cue ball and thus decide to head toward the corner pocket. The authors cite the plasma membrane with its ion channels and receptors and transporters. These biochemical machines are responsible for the complex evolved operations of the cell. Have they fallen into a trap due to a semantic mistake? This device has a, center, a sensor. To sense is to have a perceptual experience, therefore the sensor is having perceptual experiences. This is nonsense. I admit that I've just produced a straw man, but in essence I can't escape that this is the form of their proposal. They write, quote, Nanobrains are behind the phenomenon of nano-intentionality, which is based on the fact that structural plasticity is inherent not only to cells, but is expressed in individual biomolecules. Cells continuously rearrange their molecules according to their actual sensory experiences mediated via synomic fields. Synomic fields animate cellular biomolecules not only through biotensegrity, 
but also by electrical, magnetic, acoustic, and photonic and Lorentz forces, which permeate the cellular interior, continuously affecting changing conformations of all cellular molecules. Cenomic nano-mind generated via cellular nanobrains allows a scale-free cognition to generate the self. The cellular self is capable of obtaining meaningful content of the sensory information relevant for adaptation and survival. In other words, the cenomic self is proposed to allow the establishment of cellular purposiveness, allowing even unicellular organisms to be sentient and display cellular proto-consciousness. That purposive agency is directed to the maintenance of cellular homeostatic equipoise in defense of that instantiated self. Cellular proto-consciousness can thus explain the baffling abilities of unicellular organisms to act as intelligent organisms." Unquote. No, this is ridiculous. We've never encountered a cellular phenomenon which has not been amenable to a reductionist explanation. Here, the term nanobrain is being used to describe a complex system, as all living things are. There are thousands and thousands of moving parts in a cell, and natural selection explains how that could come to be through non-purposeful means over time. They say that, quote, cells continuously rearrange their molecules according to their actual sensory experiences mediated via synomic fields, unquote. No, Molecule, molecules do what they do because of physics, not because they have sensory experiences. I could say the same thing they did about a chemical reaction in a beaker. The mixture continuously rearranges its molecules according to its actual sensory experiences mediated by biochemistry. The closer I look at this paper, the more outrageous it appears. In the example I just provided, doesn't biochemistry do the work? Look, if sometimes the reaction came out one way and sometimes another in a mysterious manner, we might wonder whether there was some kind of mind at work. But that's not what happens, ever. It looks as if they have done the same semantic trick with the term nanobrain that I observe with the term sense. Brains have consciousness. Cells are little brains. Therefore, cells have consciousness. I can see how the sausage is made and I'm starting to lose my appetite. Human beings are natural storytellers. Primitive people everywhere tell stories about the sun and the moon, for example. In doing this, they assign purposive agency to these heavenly objects. They might say that the moon is a wolf and the sun is a sheep. Just as, as the sheep gives us warmth with its wool, the sun showers us with its life-sustaining heat. In its nightly hunt, the moon pursues the sun across the sky. This kind of story, which I just made up, by the way, could be used by analogy to provide helpful lessons. In the wild, for example, the light of the moon can portend danger because many predators hunt by its light. Thus, lions and hyenas are a danger in the night when the moon is full. Children in the primitive society might be warned to seek shelter when you see the wolf in the sky. What happens when we extend this storytelling tendency to modern scientific matters? We end up conjuring unnecessary anthropomorphic descriptions of natural phenomena. Our language has evolved out of crude metaphors, and we have to be careful not to get trapped by words, generalizing from the words themselves rather than the phenomena they indicate. This is how we might get from sensor to sensation. The thing is what it is. That doesn't change because we give the name sensor. And you can call the complex set of operations achieved by a cell a nanobrain if you want, but that doesn't make it a thinking thing. In my opinion, this work is too speculative, a bit too liberal of mind. A few decades ago, you couldn't get a paper on consciousness through peer review. Science at that time had the opposite problem. It was too rigid. Now there is room for much more creative thinking. 
In those days, the enterprise was over-limited. Many real phenomena were neglected or denied. These studies suggest the opposite problem, at least in my opinion, the opposite error. Too rigid of imagination and you'll deny that dinosaurs ever existed. Too open-minded and you'll argue for dragons. I'll keep my eye to both sides, to the left and to the right. But as for me, I walk along the middle way.